Jonathan and Jordan Vest have not been worshiping with us because I don't know if you could tell there, but Jordan is pregnant and she is uh, due later this month and they are waiting to find out if it's going to be a boy or a girl. And so uh, we'll, they'll be excited along with the rest of us, but it's good to, Jordan, it's good to see your face. Glad you guys are worshiping with us via the live stream. Today we look at John 14 that Jordan just read. And Jesus' words, we're going to largely concentrate on six words that Jesus says to his disciples. And he begins with the words, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Who do you say, let not your hearts be troubled to, other than people who have hearts who are troubled, right? And probably as much as any time that we can remember... In our lives, in American society, we have troubled hearts. What a timely message for us. Because while so many countries have been able to deal well with the coronavirus, I got an email from one of our, um, one of our missionaries that we support. We sent a team to Zanzibar, and I guess it's kind of easy to deal with coronavirus there. They just shut down for three months. They're an island, and so they have no cases of coronavirus because they shut down for three months and everyone wears a mask. But we're not on an island, right? And so we've had a hard time as Americans dealing with this pandemic. Now our president and first lady have been diagnosed with a, with a virus. We need to pray for them, no matter whether we would vote for them or not. We should pray for them because the Bible commands us to support and pray for our leaders. And so many of us have been sheltering in place, and statistics show the negative mental effects that have taken place as a result of that. Worry is on the rise. Stress is going up. Isolation and loneliness are headed in the wrong direction. And a lot of people are dealing with increased job loss, which brings its own set of problems. The statistics show us that it brings about negative mental health effects, like um, things like anxiety and distress and low self-esteem, higher substance abuse, in the worst of cases, even suicide. And then that's not to mention the fact of all the people who are losing their minds over some kind of uh, protocol when it comes to coronavirus or whether school should be in or out or whether football should be being played. And about the time that you think that things are going the way you think they should be going, then a game gets delayed or canceled or things don't turn out the way you thought they should. And that was all before the presidential debate started, right? Probably the one thing that we can all agree on at this point in time in America is that we don't agree on anything, hardly. And it's almost enough that you got to either laugh or cry, right? It's one of those things, if you don't laugh, you'll probably cry about it. And I don't know of a better time in our lives that we would hear Jesus' words, and they're, they're not just words. They're actually an imperative. It's a command in the Greek. Let not your hearts be troubled. Which I don't know if you've thought about this before, but if Jesus would command us that our hearts would not be troubled, that would seem to indicate that there is some power or authority that we have 
in order that it would change our mental state, our mental health. Some power or authority that doesn't just begin with maybe pharmaceuticals or or the latest um, maybe idol that we would run to in our hearts. But Jesus says, that, and he's going to actually show us how in this text that we would live lives in which our hearts are not troubled. If you remember the context of John chapter 14, his disciples are very troubled. They're at a point of catastrophic failure. They've been following Jesus for the last three and a half years. And in Jesus is all of their well-being, their careers. You could say their identity is wrapped up in Jesus. So much so that at the very moment in Jesus' life where he is experiencing the most trouble, this is the night before he'll go to the cross, This is that last supper that we've seen portrayed uh, a lot of times with the long flat table, which is not at all how they would eat. At the last supper, they would be laying down on their side. But this is that last supper moment where the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus stands and does the unthinkable and he washes the disciples' feet. He takes on that lowly place of a servant, showing them, he's pointing them. It's, like, it's almost like he's acting a parable out for them that shows them what the cross is going to accomplish. That he is going to lower himself to a point in which he is going to offer forgiveness and cleansing to all who would believe. That's where we find the disciples. They're a point of catastrophic failure because as they are arguing about who's the greatest... Jesus tells them, well, one of you is about to betray me, so go ahead, Judas, and leave. And then he looks at Peter and he says, you're going to deny me this night. And so the rest of the disciples are thinking, man, if Peter, who's so bold, if his faith is going to be shaken, what are the chances that we're going to continue to follow Jesus? His disciples are at a place in which they are troubled. And the truth of the matter is this, believers. If you are a follower of Jesus, you also will face times in which you will be troubled. And you'll be troubled specifically because you are living by faith. Living by faith means that there are moments in which we find ourselves as a complete mess. Being troubled goes with trusting. Say that again. Being troubled goes with trusting. You can't have one without the other. But the good news is you don't have to stay there. Jesus tells us how. A lot of times you've probably heard people say that faith is the absence of fear. It's ridiculous. Faith is the furthest thing from the absence of fear. Faith and courage grow in the middle of fear and uncertainty. That's why all throughout the Old Testament you would see God commanding the children of Israel to go and to to take a land. And he would give them um, a command in which he would call them to obedience. And what would be the very next thing that he would say to them? Over and over again, his words would echo, do not be afraid. Why did he say that? Because there was an opportunity for them to be afraid. There was an opportunity as they followed him in faith for their hearts to be troubled. And we deal with this same issue over and over again. It's a natural reality in our lives. 
And before you start feeling a lot of shame about how much trouble you actually experience in your life, um, I, I want you to think for just a minute. Because when it comes to a troubled spirit, just as a side note, being afraid doesn't necessarily mean that we're living in sin or that we're living in unbelief. Being afraid doesn't necessarily mean that we're living in sin or unbelief. Fear is a natural feeling. It's a natural emotion that's actually good. It it warns us that something is wrong. Fear is a good emotion. You feel fear when you're at the edge of a cliff. You feel fear when you see a poisonous snake. That's a good thing. It tells you that you need to react That you need to do something to protect yourself. That everything is not okay. But how we respond to fear is crucial. Because we can either trust in ourselves. And we can say, I've got what it takes. Or we can follow after God and allow the fear to point us. And here's the crucial thing. To point us to our need for God and our need for others. And the reality that we don't have what it takes, but that we need help. So let me ask you, we're like nine minutes into a message, and I already want to move toward application for you. This last week, I want you to stop, and I want you to take a mental inventory for a moment. You might need to pull your calendar up on your phone. Feel the freedom to do that. How do you respond in unhealthy ways when you are troubled and afraid? Stop and think for a moment this last week. When were you troubled? And when were you afraid? Some of you don't have to think very far. You just you say, I can go to the first day of the week, Monday morning. And I woke up with a ball of anxiety in my gut. I was troubled and afraid. Maybe you didn't even know why. How do you respond in moments where you find yourself troubled and afraid? Let me give you a hint. It has something to do with your story. The things that trouble you and make you afraid. They're very deeply connected to your story. And then secondly, the way in which you respond, be careful. They may even look like strengths in your life. I don't think I understood that until a psychologist pointed out to me. One of my strengths is that I typically can work pretty hard. Um, Maybe not harder than everybody, but maybe harder than the average guy. I mean, I was here at 7, a little after 7 this morning, got all the lights and AV stuff cut on, and everything was like ready to roll by 7.30. I was, you know, I had some stuff that I needed to do, but I was just up early this morning. I, I like to work. That sounds like a strength, right? But if you look at my life and look at the times in which I'm overworking, It's because I'm afraid. And I didn't realize that until someone pointed that out to me. I'm afraid that we're not going to have enough money. I'm afraid that we're not going to have enough people. I'm afraid that I'm not going to look like I'm successful. I'm afraid. And it's actually fear that oftentimes pushes me into unhealthy patterns in my own life. Jesus' command is, let not your hearts be troubled. What troubles your heart? What makes you afraid? Now keep in mind, Jesus is seeming to indicate here that we have some power or some authority over our hearts and emotions and our mental health. 
And he is commanding his disciples. He's commanding us. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And he tells us how. He tells us how as he goes on in the second part of verse 1. And he says, believe in God, believe also in me. He's pointing his disciples, put their faith and their trust in him. And then Jesus launches into what seems like a bit of an odd turn. So keep in mind, up to this point, Jesus has been saying... Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because it was the moment of all moments in the disciples' lives and in his life in which they should be afraid. He's about to be arrested. He's about to give his life as a ransom for many. He's just washed their feet. They've just, they've just gone from who's the greatest and now experiencing shame. Then they've heard that one of you are going to uh, betray me and, and the strongest of you are going to deny me. That they, all of this is wrapped up in this dark moment in the disciples' lives. And then listen to what Jesus says to them as a response as to how they should not be afraid. He, got, he starts telling this story about how he's going to leave them. <laughs> how does that help, Jesus? Like, not helpful. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. Maybe one of the most mistranslated verses of all time, King James Version, in my Father's house are many mansions. You probably heard this before. You probably heard people say, hey, I might not have much here, but I'm working on a mansion in heaven. You ever heard anybody say that before? Bad news for you. It's not the case. That is not the translation. That is not what Jesus is offering here. He is not offering us a mansion in heaven that's in correspondence to our good works. Praise God. Because if he were offering us uh, the, to build us something in heaven that corresponds to our works here, for most of us, I can't speak for you, but for me, you start propping my good works up against all the sin in my life, I'd be, I'd be doing good to have a cardboard box, folks. Not even sure I'd have that. That's not what Jesus is offering here. But he goes off on this random tangent of a story. Jesus, what are you doing? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. What, Jesus? You're leaving us? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. The disciples are going, huh? What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus is actually using wedding language here. He's actually, this would have been hugely familiar to the disciples. It would have sounded like someone who's getting engaged. Jesus is using wedding language. Back in his day and time, when a guy and a gal got married, their fathers would negotiate a bride price. They recognized the bride would be a precious loss to their family. And so they would negotiate this bride price. And then the potential bride and groom would come together. They would take a cup of wine and the groom would drink from it and he would offer it to the woman in a way of saying that he wants to offer her a covenant and is willing to give his life for hers. And the woman would seal the engagement by drinking from the cup of wine, which would be referred to as one bought with a price. 
So that should sound familiar to us as we think back to the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus was saying, my father loves you so much. He's negotiated a bride price that's so steep, it's going to cost me my very life. That's how much God loves his children. That's how much he loves us. And he chose wedding language to describe his love for us. So I know, guys, that might not get you real excited a lot of the ladies in the room, they're like, yes, weddings. If I could do my wedding again. They've been thinking about their wedding day from like, since they were young. So guys, just think about the honeymoon. Ladies, think about the wedding day, right? But this is wedding language. That was a joke. I hope you're laughing under your mask. Um, that's why that as God uses this language, it shows his love for us. He chose wedding language to describe his love for us. And what happens next after this, when they would negotiate this bride price? What happens next is that the groom would go and he would pick up a rock. But not the kind of rock you're thinking about. He would actually go to his father's house and he would begin to add on to the house. This is crazy. We can't imagine what this must have been like. But in this day and time, think about they lived in communal clusters of buildings that were called insulas. And they would build around a central courtyard. So imagine for just a minute your grandparents, your cousins, your aunts, and your uncles. A daily family reunion. Can you imagine this? This is how they lived together. And the father was the patriarch. And so the groom went home to add on a room to his father's house. And in the meantime, the bride would wait. And when the groom's father finally gives his approval that the construction is completed, the groom would go and he would collect the wedding party. And then he would go and he would collect his bride who was anxiously waiting. Does this sound familiar? Does this not sound like what Jesus has established for us, his church, his bride? He calls us his bride. It's why Paul would even in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 if you're not familiar with this language, this might not make sense to you. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20, it's why Paul, when he is talking to the Corinthian church and when he is um, talking to them about fleeing from sexual immorality, it's why he would say, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul was saying that God has bought you with a price. The price was Jesus. And he's placed his Holy Spirit in you. So he has this intimacy with you that is even greater than the intimacy that you have in a marriage relationship. And so when he's talking about sexual immorality, he's saying, don't be an adulterer to God. Not just your spouse. He's calling Christians to this. And in this wedding language, what's the point of all this? Why would Jesus, in the moment that his disciples are troubled, why would he start talking to them about a wedding and the fact that he's leaving? Well, Jesus is telling them. He's saying that he's going to prepare a place 
for them. And he's not talking about the fact that some people think that Jesus has been hammering away two by fours and nails for the last 2,000 years. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the cross and the resurrection. He's saying, I'm going to do the work that is needed to bring you into relationship with God. I'm preparing a place for you by paying your sin debt so that you can be at peace with God. So that you can be forgiven and that you can be cleansed. And just like he washed their feet, he'll wash their hearts and make them forgiven and courageous and bold and patient and kind and joyful and peaceful. Because all of that is found in Jesus. That's what he's offering them. And it's what he offers us as his followers. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus really is that good? Well, Thomas didn't. Thomas was confused. And so in verses 5 through 7, even though Jesus has been telling his disciples over and over again that he's going to be crucified, they just don't get it. And Thomas was much like us. We want to believe that following Jesus means earthly riches. And instead, Jesus is offering something greater than earthly riches. He's offering relationship with the God of the universe. Yes, he's preparing a place for us. He did that through the cross. And yes, that place will be a reward. It will be heaven. And we also have his spirit now. Now, oftentimes, when we think about Jesus, Jesus responds to Thomas When we think about Jesus, oftentimes we think about him like Mr. Rogers. You know, let the little children come to me, Jesus said. We often think about him as as this this kind, very mild-mannered guy. But I think in verse 6, in his reply to, to Thomas, this is probably the most absolute and intolerant statement that's ever been made. Maybe the most absolute and intolerant statement that's ever been made. In verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that if you want to find God, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to find peace that cures the troubled heart, it can only be found in the person and work of Jesus. He is making this absolute claim that says there is no other religion and that there are no other good works. There's no meditation tactic. There are no exercises that will calm the mind and body. Although those things could be found as valuable in the temporary, Jesus is saying that God is offering us a relationship. And he's using wedding language to show us that as good as earthly marriage can be, that it pales in comparison to the relationship he offers us through the person of Jesus. God is saying that he is offering us through Jesus unconditional love, friendship, forgiveness, intimacy. Well, in verses 8 through 11, Philip wants to know God, like so many people in our world. 
He wants to know where to find God. If he could just see God. And he's not sure how to find God. So he asked Jesus for directions. And Jesus tells him, if you want to see God, just look at me. Jesus is saying that if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know God, if you want to find God, look at Jesus. The mystery of the Bible is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He goes on to explain that those who believe in him, and he says something miraculous, he's, uh, something crazy. He says, those who believe in him will do greater works than he has done. Jesus' works were his miracles, his teaching, his entire ministry. And some have argued that when Jesus said that those who follow me will do even greater works, they say, well, he must have been talking about the quantity of his works. Because there have been millions of followers of Jesus over the centuries, right? Who have followed him. But the wording in the Greek actually points not toward quantity, but it points toward the quality of that work. Now I want you to think with me for a minute. Over the last 2,000 years, we've seen Jesus work through his followers, hands and feet. Millions of churches have been started. Who can fathom all that's been done because of the cross and the resurrection of Christ? And in verse 13, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I think as a 14-year-old, I probably thought that meant if I pray for a Corvette in Jesus' name, then it might happen. It's not what Jesus is saying here. He, in my name means in alignment with my will, which is always to glorify the Father. Now I want to end in just helping us to think about this passage. Talk about a swing of the pendulum. And that's what the gospel does in our lives because of Jesus. Jesus takes the worst of times. Times in which they're extremely troubled. And he shows us how he has the power to transform our lives. To take our greatest tragedies and to create incredible triumphs for his kingdom. And for our joy. So if your life feels like a mess right now, listen to Jesus as he instructs us as his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You say, that sounds good, Brad. That, that, that sounds good. I don't really know what that means to depend on Jesus. Romans chapter 5 helps us a little bit with this. I just want, I want you to write down Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. I want you to go back and look at it this week. Because Paul helps us to kind of unpack this. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I should have put all of that on one slide so that you can see it together. So please write that scripture down. Go back and look at it this week. Paul is saying, it seems impossible that we as followers of Jesus would rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we do that? 
rejoice in suffering because we would know that suffering produces endurance. We're either going to give up or we're going to keep following Jesus. And the only way we're going to keep following Jesus and endure is by saying, I'm suffering and I'm helpless. And I need Jesus' help and I need the help of others. And when that happens, it's going to show us that we don't have what it takes, but that Jesus does. And so it's going to build up a kind of character within us. And that character that's produced, it's going to produce hope in us. Because we're going to be reminded that no, no matter how bad our circumstances are, our hope is not in our circumstances, but our hope is in Jesus. And so we become people who are hugely hopeful and always joyful because our hope is not in what lies in front of us in terms of our circumstance. Our hope is in Jesus and the Holy Spirit's in our hearts. And God reminds us of that. Let's just wrap this passage up in this way. Lived in Nashville for a few years and had a good friend there. Um, her name was Sarah Jane Medell. I don't have a lot of females that I say are good friends. Um, but she was a good friend of mine. She's a good friend of Katie's. She was a great nurse. Um, she cared for both Katie and I on separate mission trips when we were in Haiti together. And um, she would just give me meds. And I would say, Sarah Jane, what is this? She would say, just take it. You're green. And I learned I would just take it. And then I would feel better. So I trusted Sarah Jane. She was also a great um, singer, songwriter, really great country artist, great voice. Um, she never signed a label, but incredible unknown country artist. And a uh, good friend, and her granddad was in the hospital. And one morning I texted her early and said, Hey, the Holy Spirit just put you and your granddad on my heart, praying for you today. And she texted back and she said, He, he doesn't have long. We need you to come and pray that way prayer. And I knew instantly what she was talking about. Because she had heard this passage before. And she knew the way prayer. I remember going to the hospital pretty soon after I got that text from her. And I remember walking in the room and I could instantly read the room. And I heard the doctor say, time of death. And he announced it. And as I greeted the family in the hospital room, there was really nothing that could be said or that really should be said in a moment like that. And I asked them if I could pray for them. And they said, absolutely. And I began to pray, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Because in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you unto myself. So that where I am, there you may be also. Thomas said to him, Jesus, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except through me. And in that moment, Jesus was all they had in that hospital room. And Jesus was all they needed. 
I don't know where you are this morning in your life. I don't know if your heart is troubled. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, explore the person of Jesus. Come to know Jesus. Know the one who cures a troubled heart. Know that you can't deal with your sin on your own, but that he offers forgiveness and that he offers cleansing. And offer yourself to God and just say, God, would you forgive me? God, I surrender my life to you. God, would you cleanse me? God, would you cure my troubled heart? And Jesus promises he'll do that. Some of you are believers and you're here today. And I just, I want to take like the last three minutes. And if you're listening on the live stream, I especially want to speak to you in this moment. If you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus in this passage is saying that the cure to a troubled heart is relationship with God. And sometimes we need the friendship of other believers to remind us of our relationship with God. And that's something that we're largely missing in this day and time because of the coronavirus. Jesus is offering relationship. And we need to know Him and we need to know His friends. I just want you to think about this on a really practical level. God created us as social beings who need one another for healthy life on earth. Like we, we need one another. Biologically, physically, science tells us that. Genesis 2.18 says, God said it's not good for human beings to be alone. And so you need friendship. And if you say, I'm socially distancing right now. I can't be around people. Well, then call them on the phone. Schedule FaceTime with someone. Schedule a Zoom call. Maybe you can go to the park and sit in the sunshine 15 feet away from each other with masks on and talk. We need relationships. But let me remind you, relationships don't happen easily. They take a large amount of work. And so you oftentimes have to schedule them. I have an incredible relationship with a guy who doesn't even come to our gathering usually. He's at home watching from the live stream. His name is Ben Roberts. He and I have a great relationship because we have a scheduled relationship. Because every Tuesday night, he texts me and says, do you want to run five miles in the morning? And I say, yes, I'll see you at 6.30. And he drives from Raleigh down to my house in order that we can run and that we can talk. And we do it. I think it's pretty safe. And we talk, we hang out, we stop, and we finish our run, and we have conversation together. And we talk about things that deeply matter to us because we have a relationship together. You need intimacy and you need relationship. And it's oftentimes our friends of Jesus who remind us of the relationship that we have with Jesus. If you don't know how to build relationships, and I'd refer you to Vaughn Roberts' book, True Friendship. It talks about the biblical basis for friendships and how we need them. I just want to encourage you. Find friendships. Schedule them into your lives. Do not allow the coronavirus to isolate you. When you need help, ask for others. We need this in our lives in order to be healthy people. You need it. It doesn't come naturally. It hasn't always come naturally for me. 
Happy birthday, Matt Nason. I know you're back there in the family room. I say that because Matt is one of my very good friends. And a few years ago, I realized so many of my relationships are connected to people that I work with, people in the church that I like, they volunteer or they're leaders. And while that's a good thing, I also just need friendships. And several years ago, I told Matt, I said, Man, I just need you to call me, and I'm going to call you, and we're just going to hang out because I need better friendships in my life. And Matt is a good friend, and I want to say thanks, Matt. That probably sounds a little weird. Guys, most of us aren't good at building relationships. We have to schedule them. I want to encourage you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Find relationship in Jesus. Find relationship with the friends of Jesus. Let me invite the band to come on up. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for this text. God, thank you for how it warms our heart to know that you love us so much. God, you love us in an even greater way than the love that we experience in our own marriages. God, thank you for the person of Jesus who's shown his love for us by laying down his life. God, may we never get over the work of the cross, and the power of the resurrection. God, forgive us for times in which we've doubted the works that you want to accomplish through us. God, pray that we would surrender our lives to you. And we would find relationship with you in relationship with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.